tremendous message as well. Amen? It's nice when things are performed well, but boy, it makes the whole difference when it's truly a message that is consistent with the Word of God. Amen? That's good stuff. Well, take your Bible. Turn over to the book of 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, we're in our study here on uh, Add to Your Faith. So we're going to read, beginning in verse 5 of chapter 1, as we continue our study. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, read through verse 7. And besides this, beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. In 2 Peter, we know the apostles writing to believers who have endured and experienced tremendous poverty and persecution. These folks were acquainted with grief and they were acquainted with injustices. Their faith had placed them on the most wanted list, if you will. They had been hunted down. They'd been handed over to authorities for believing in the resurrected Christ. The very thing that we believe today put them in prison and separated them from family and friends and ultimately led to their early deaths. The apostle now writes to them, out of concern. He had watched them successfully navigate or face every trial and overcome them with tremendous victory. As Satan, the lion, attacked, they continued to rise above those attacks. But in 2 Peter, it would not be the conflict without, but it would be the corruption within that Peter was most concerned about. Peter... He knew that the church could not be destroyed by fierce torments, but on the other hand, false teaching could bring it to its knees. And like any ministry, the strength of that ministry is found in the individual maturity of its members. We often refer to 
a chain and say, well, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. Well, that is the case in any ministry. There are always those that are being saved and restored back to fellowship that are beginning their spiritual journey. However, strong churches that stand against the winds and change of corruption, those are churches that are built on the backs of faithful and fruitful believers. Peter is determined to build up the body of believers. And with the present concern and potential collapse of their faith, he now outlines a course of action to ensure their fruitfulness in their future. He provides them with a prescription for success. And over these last weeks, we've noted that prescription as it's mentioned and talked about in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. We noted, one, that the foundation is affirmed in verses 1 through 4. We said the framework is added in verses 5 through 7. The fruit is assured in verses 8 through 9. And the fall is avoided in verse 10. Peter, along with God himself, is determined now to assist these saints and to equip them and enable them to give them the very tools they need to guarantee the success that they need in order to be neither barren nor unfruitful and ultimately never fall. The secret to success is described in this passage, and it's described by a simple three-letter word, add. It is this concept that lays the foundation for our church theme this year, add to your faith, add to your faith. If you and I hope to neither be barren nor unfruitful, we must add to our faith. If we ever long to succeed in the Christian life, then we're going to need to add to our faith. If we never want to fall from the faith or the favor of God, then we must add to our faith. Last week we addressed the topic, the foundation is affirmed. This morning we begin to address the next topic, our attention or attention to the frame is added, the framework is added. And so we're going to look at this framework that has to be added to our faith in order to ensure that we're neither barren nor unfruitful, and to make sure that we never fall. Peter, he took the time early on in verses 1 through 4 to assure that those believers understood they were on a solid foundation. Their salvation was secure. Their hope was steadfast. He says to them in verse 1, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. What he's basically saying is this, you have this precious faith, this like precious faith. The fact is, is that the humblest and the weakest believer has the exact same faith that Abraham has or that even Peter himself had. It's all the same faith. Why? Because it's all made possible through one person and that one person is Jesus Christ and only Him. He went on to tell them that, again, that born in a natural state, born into this world, they were born fallen with an atomic nature, a nature that could do nothing right. But by means of the new birth, he goes on to let them know that they can have a new nature, a divine nature, one that can do nothing wrong. And that new nature was given to us at that new birth. And that divine nature is none other than the nature of Christ Himself in us. It's upon this sure and solid foundation that we're now told to add. And besides, beside this giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. 
and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. Again, notice that the apostle makes it abundantly clear that we need to add to our faith, yes, but he says also that basically as a Christian, there's more to that life than just being saved. Oh yeah, add to your faith, he says. But what he's really saying is, is that being a Christian is more than just being saved. I mean, thankfully, we've escaped the awful consequences of our sinful nature. I mean, praise the Lord that our eternal destination is settled and we have a reservation in heaven. I'm glad for that. I'm excited about that. Thank God we no longer are bound by Satan to endure a fiery furnace one day in a place called hell. And that's a blessing. Still, being saved is only the starting line. See, no one that's given the opportunity to run in the Olympics would be simply satisfied to take their place at the starting line. I mean, they may enjoy the trip. They may appreciate the accommodations that have been given to them. They may even be extremely excited and and glad to take that walk there as they enter into the stadium and the opening ceremonies. But as wonderful as being there is, running the race is their true desire. To be there and only be permitted to take their place at the starting line as the runners take off and run around the, the, uh, uh, the, the stadium. To simply watch them and have to, to enjoy the, the, the obstacle of it all is not at all what they have in mind. Matter of fact, they're not happy in the least. No, they're happy only as they participate. They're only happy as they strive for the victory themselves. And the Christian life is a race to be run. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize, so run that ye may obtain. See, as believers, we can't allow ourselves to somehow fall into this lethargy, this idea, this, this laziness of believing, well, I'm saved and that's all that really matters. Nothing else matters. I'm good to go now. I'm safe at home. I can go to heaven one day and how I live my life is important maybe, but then again, on the other hand, I'm saved. That's what matters most. But salvation, my friend, is simply the beginning of a lifelong journey. It's only the the starting line. It's the beginning point. And the Apostle Peter is saying, you know, I've made it clear that you're safe on your faith foundation." Your salvation secure and your reservation recorded. However, in order to neither be barren nor unfruitful and to ensure that you never fall, you must, you have to put forth the greatest effort in your life to adding some things to your faith. Notice in verse 5 again, he emphasizes the effort that each of us have to exert. He notice he says the words, he says, giving all diligence... Diligence has to do with constant effort to accomplish what is undertaken. It's exertion of body or mind without unnecessary delay or sloth. As believers, we have to exhibit constant effort. We have to be constantly exerting energy in this area of growth and maturity. It's not enough to simply be saved. We must grow from there on. If indeed we're going to be fruitful if we're never going to fall. So how do we do this? 
Add. He says, add. Add to your faith virtue. Add to virtue knowledge. And to knowledge, temperance. And to temperance, patience. And patience, godliness. And to godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, charity. Add. You know, it's interesting to note these particular characteristics and qualities. They seem to build upon one another, don't they? I mean, you notice that each is shared twice in the passage. Once to introduce it, and the second time to add to it. You notice, again, the construction of it. Add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance. So the first time it's mentioned, we notice that it's listed. And then after that, it's built upon. I think that's important. J.A. Bangle states it this way. He says, each step, each, step give, each step gives birth to and facilitates the next. Each subsequent quality balances and brings to perfection the one preceding. Daryl Charles makes this statement. He says, each virtue, a fruit of the life of faith, facilitates the next. None is independent of the others. I guess a good illustration of this could possibly be that of kind of like a, a, an embryo and how it develops in its mother's womb. Have you ever seen those pictures of an embryo in the belly? Well, all the parts of a baby are developing kind of simultaneously. They all kind of happen at the same time. But you know what? As the fingers are forming and, and they're growing and the lungs happen to be growing and developing along with it, the arms and the torso and all that stuff, kind of everything kind of forming together. But the fact is, is that although the parts are developing kind of at a certain rate together, there's a noticeable developmental sequence that takes place. So what do you mean? Well, the first thing we notice is a, in the picture of an embryo is a big head. You ever notice that big head? You want to know why? Because it, it, it has a brain in it. Do you know that the rest of it's not going to develop without the brain? Although everything is kind of developing simultaneously, the emphasis uh, or the foundation for that development takes place in the brain. And, and then as that brain develops uh, it, and it becomes large, and it's able to then give direction and, and, and to the other parts of the body. But then upon uh, then next thing that begins to develop really and the emphasis and focus on the body is that heart. Because now that extremities are starting to be developed, there has to be an ability to feed those extremities. So although they're developing kind of simultaneously, there's really a sequence that takes place. And may I say the Christian life is, is no different. When we look at this list, we can say, yeah, there's an element where we could work on this one and we could work on that one. We could work on this one simultaneously or a, a kind of here and there, kind of a shotgun effect. But may I say to you, the fact is, is that in reality, we'll never come to full maturity until we take the steps as they are presented to us in Scripture. We must follow them in order. We must build upon one to perfect the, the next one. So in a sense, we can't willfully neglect or skip any part of the framework. We can't say, I'm, I'm not interested in dealing with that one. I'll skip that one. No, because then from that point on, all we are doing is a perpetuating failure. So in essence, what he's saying is 
You're saved, but now you must add to your faith in order to be neither barren nor unfruitful. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be barren. I don't want to be unfruitful. I don't want to get to heaven one day and have nothing to offer the Lord. Someone says, well, aren't these graces and aren't these characteristics all a result of Christ? Without a doubt. No doubt about it. They can't happen without Him. But as you read through Scripture, there is no doubt that you and I have to put forth the effort which cultivates them in our life. It doesn't ultimately bring them about, but it lays the soil, if you will, so that God can plant them in our our lives and begin to manifest them in our lives. But we understand that we are unable to accomplish anything in ourselves. Without Him, we are nothing. But we still have to strive and we still have to work at certain areas. When we cultivate, we provide an atmosphere of cultivation by our effort and our desire and our efforts. So, verse 5 says, add to your faith virtue. I want to be fruitful. I don't want to ever fall from the faith. I don't think you do either. So we have to begin by adding. He says in verse 5, add to your faith virtue. So in just a moment, we're going to define that and just take just a couple minutes to discuss it. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. We ask, Lord, that you'd help us to understand this word virtue to somehow be able to put it into a practical format. Lord, help us, Lord, just to be able to receive it and, Lord, realize that, Lord, as we look at this list that's been provided for us, it's one that each one builds upon the next, that if we're going to truly, Father, please you and be neither bare nor unfruitful and never fall, we've got to build upon this faith foundation. We need the framework, and the framework is listed there in verses 5 through 7. Help us now, Lord, to understand it and to describe it, to define it, and ultimately, Father, um, display it in our lives. Well, thank you. In Christ's name, amen. So, virtue. Add to your faith virtue. It's the, at the top of the list after faith, of course. Now, we're talking then to believers. He's speaking to those that are already saved. He's dealing with the church and, and people that are born again. And he says, now it's time to add to that Faith foundation. Now, if you've never come to a personal knowledge, a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, this isn't really what you need to focus on. Because you need to get saved first. You need to invite Christ into your life. You you need to understand that you're a sinner and that you're going to pay for your sin if you don't let Jesus Christ pay for it. And that's what he dealt with in verses 1 through 4. And we're not going to take the time to rehash all of that. So you need Christ as your Lord and Savior. If there's never been a time or place when you received and accepted Him, when you finally said, I'm that sinner that you died for. I can't get to heaven without you. Only you can save me and take me to heaven. I need you to come into my life, Lord. Be my Savior. If you've never done that, then that's what you need to do. And at the end of the service today, or really right now, I could care less. You could get up and say, that's me. And somebody will grab you, take you out. We'll help you find the way. And the, the way is in the Word of God, and the way is Jesus Christ. It's not a faith. It's not a denomination. It's a person, Jesus. But for those that know Christ, he says, now we need to add. Add to your faith virtue. Virtue speaks of moral excellence. It speaks of an inner strength, a courage that translates into or compels us to live with moral excellence and genuine goodness. Virtue takes us beyond simple belief and moves us to behave. It's one of those things that 
we should meditate on consistently and constantly according to the Word of God. Take your Bible, look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Philippi, and he says to them, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. See, the more we think about virtue, the more we think about moral excellence, the more we meditate on that thought and that mindset, the more horrible and terrible vice will appear to us. Virtue, in a sense, verbalizes for us the character of the Christian life. It's uh, that, that, that character's genuine goodness. It's that moral excellence. In the Greek culture, it was a little bit different, and I think that because the word was, is rooted in the Greek, uh, I think there's something to it. It's a word that's spelled A-R-E-T-E. For my sake, I just said I don't know if that's how you say it or not. But in, in ancient Greece, they used the term in a way that I believe it translates to what we are talking about today because obviously I wasn't there, so I have to try to understand the culture a little bit. And as I look at that, the, the culture viewed that word arete, it meant excellence. Well, it's just basically exactly what we're talking about. Moral excellence, in this case, excellence in general. So, it meant excellence. Virtue, or to be virtuous, that word arete, something was only virtuous if it fulfilled its purpose. So, it means excellence. But the word arete, meant virtuous, but it was only a reed or virtuous if it fulfilled its purpose. So I guess you could say that that sword at your side, that it was only excellent if it would cut. It was only virtuous if it cut. It was a reed if it fulfilled its purpose, but it could be shiny. It could have a wonderful handle on it. It could look just immaculate, but the fact is if it didn't fulfill the purpose it was designed for, it could not be a reed or virtuous because it didn't fulfill its purpose. A warrior or a, or a soldier was only considered excellent if he was brave and courageous enough in battle. But, if it, it, but it didn't matter how many countries that he attended or visited or went to. It didn't matter how polished his armor was or how sharp his sword really was. If he ran from the enemy, if he wouldn't stand and fight in battle, then he wasn't a reet. He wasn't excellent. He wasn't virtuous. Because he wasn't fulfilling his purpose. What then is the ultimate purpose of the believer in light of our passage? Well, the fact is, is that you and I today as believers, those that have named the name of Christ, are to become like Christ in our character. And then, by our manner of life, we're to show others what Christ is like so that they that see can then honor Him as well. Notice how Jesus put it. Turn to Matthew 5.16. 
Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking and He says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That's how the Lord put it. Ultimately, everything about us should point people to Jesus Christ. We understand that. This virtue that is ours is that inward or that energy within that focuses our attention on Jesus Christ and the desire to be Christ-like, places it preeminent in our life. And the truth is it doesn't matter how intelligent, it doesn't matter how wealthy or successful we are in the field that we choose, it doesn't matter how many people admire us or appreciate us. If we're not displaying the excellent character of God Himself in us, by the way we live and the way we act and the attitude that we have, then we cannot consider ourselves excellent in the Christian life. We do not possess a reet. On the other hand, it doesn't matter how limited our abilities are. It doesn't matter how poor we are or unappreciated we may be. If we reflect the likeness of Christ, then guess what? We do possess true excellence. We possess virtue. No one... No one in the world has ever defined purpose and fulfilled it any better than Jesus Christ Himself. Nobody ever did that. No one exhibited the moral excellence that He did while He lived on this earth. He was virtue personified. Christ-likeness must be our great goal as believers. That must be our greatest desire. That moral excellence that Christ Himself possessed needs to be what we strive for because we are to have Christ-likeness. And if we are bent on self and doing things our way and going in our own direction, then we do not have this virtue, this arete, this excellence that the Christian is to have in their life. We cannot be content as believers to simply be believers. We must strive to add to our faith a Christ-likeness, a moral excellence. And that trait or characteristics of virtue will only be realized in our lives when we do a couple of things. Let me give you just three simple thoughts. One, desire. You and I have to desire. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29, take your Bible, turn there, would you please? It's very hard to describe or to define this word virtue in Scripture. It's only used five times, really. Three times in the passage we're discussing. It's a very difficult word. Six times, really, I believe. But it's, it's, it's hard to wrap our mind around it because it's not just something I see, feel, or touch. I mean, virtue has a tendency to speak to an inner strength, a courage. It's a driving force that ultimately will enable us to follow through with the rest of the list. It's the very foundation by which all the others will be built upon. A moral excellence. An excellence that says, I'm fulfilling my purpose. My greatest desire, my longing is to be like Christ. How do we do that? One, desire. 
Romans chapter 8, verse 29 says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be firstborn among many brethren. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate or predetermined to be conformed to the image of his Son. The Lord Jesus Christ did not save us so that we could look, act, think like the world. He saved us so that we could be conformed to the image of His Son, so that we would look like little Jesus is running around this earth. That is a desire that you and I must have. If we truly possess virtue, our greatest desire is to be like Christ. Christian virtue is not just simply maintaining a moral standard. It's having a desire to meet the real reason or purpose for living, and that is Christ-likeness. Your desire. What's your desire? What's your longing? Who is it that you truly want to be like? When we start raising our children, obviously our children look up to us as parents and every little boy says, I want to be like daddy. And that's a good thing. That's a wonderful thing. Boy, what, what responsibility we have as dads. When that little, that little face gleams, looks up and his eyes gleam into ours and you know in his heart he just wants to be like daddy. Years ago there were commercials out and they would show a daddy smoking by a tree and the little boy would go over and grab the pack of cigarettes and pick up a cigarette. They're trying to help people to realize if you smoke, your kids will probably smoke. Why? Because children want to be like their parents. That was a good commercial and I think it grabbed our attention some. And the fact is, is that Every child, especially a young boy, wants to be like daddy. I want to be like daddy. You want to be like daddy when you grow up, you're going to have to obey mommy. There's nothing wrong with that. But as we get a little bit older, as we trust Christ as our Savior, our Father in heaven is our daddy. And we ought to look up to our Father in heaven and we ought to have the greatest desire to say, I want to be like daddy. I want to be like Jesus. He was God manifest in the flesh. So many young people today and older folk alike Look at people in this earth and on this earth and they say, I want to be like him. I want to be like her. And they miss biblical virtue. Oh, they're believers. They know Christ. But they wonder why their faith is weak. They wonder why they can't stand firm. They wonder why they seem to always drift in the Christian faith. Maybe it's because Christ-likeness is not their desire. Matter of fact, it's not even might be. It is the problem. Because it begins with a desire. Number two, not only desire, but decide. It's one thing to want something. It's another thing to decide to do, it, do what it takes to get it. Take your Bible and look over at Romans chapter 12. This characteristic, this quality of virtue will only be realized in our lives when we do a few things. One, desire it. Two, decide. <laughs> Romans chapter 12, verse 1 through 2. says, I beseech ye, therefore, brethren, verse 1, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove it is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Notice right off the bat, there's a decision to make on the part of every believer. 
I understand that we live in a world where there are a number of choices and there's a bunch of pressure and we feel pulled back and forth from the world to, the, to, to, to Christ and from our families and our workplaces and everywhere we go there's this tug of war on us as a person. But the reality is, is that you and I must make a decision, a conscious decision to present ourselves to Jesus Christ. We must make a conscious decision to say, listen, being Christ-like is what matters most in my life. And not only am I, do I want that, but I'm going to obtain it with God's help. I'm going to submit myself. I'm going to surrender myself. I'm going to present myself to Jesus Christ. And I'm going to make the pursuit of His character the pursuit of my life. We wonder again why we struggle, why our hearts are so filled with confusion, why we vacillate so much in our faith. While one week we feel strong for Jesus, the next week we feel so weak for Jesus. One month we feel on top of the world for the Lord, the next week month we feel like the rug was pulled out from under us. We're fruitful for a season and then we're no longer fruitful. We look back through the years and go, I remember when. It begins with virtue. It begins with fulfilling our great purpose, that moral excellence, that moral character, that moral fiber and strength within, to be Christ-like. We desire. We decide. And finally, three. This is not too, you know, great of an outline, but we ditch. We desire, we decide, and we ditch. That's how I was raised, to say words that were kind of like that. You ditch that. Just ditch it. it has a, it's a D. I had to use a D, right? So, Matthew chapter 16, would you please? Verse 24. So there's this desire. There's this decision that we make. And then we have to ditch. Matthew 16, 24 through 26. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, chapter 16, verse 24. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. What is it? What is a man profited? If he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul. Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? If, if we're going to truly embrace and possess this quality, this characteristic of virtue. If we're going to truly not only pursue, but ultimately acquire this Christ-likeness, that we're going to have to ditch a few things along the way. We're going to have to part with some things in our life. We may have to part with some people. We have to part with some places. We have to part with some perspectives. The reality is today in the church, and including my life and in your life, is that there is worldliness abounding. That everywhere we turn, we are inundated with flesh. We're just 
bombarded with lust. We're just overwhelmed with evil. At every turn, Satan is kind of tapping our shoulder and going, what about that? What about that? How about that one? Is this one enough to cause you to take your eyes off of him and look to the world and the flesh and the devil? It could be that person. It could be that position. It could be the prospect of prosperity. But one way or another, somehow, some way, every last one of us, if we hope to obtain this virtuous characteristic, this quality of character, this, this element of virtue, we're going to have to ditch some things in our life and make Christ Himself the goal. Not whether or not we play soccer well, or we're good at batting, or we can put a ball in a hoop. Not that we can accomplish things intellectually and find the finest degrees, possess the greatest of all materialistic things. That cannot be our goal in the Christian life if we're going to be virtuous because we must fulfill our great purpose for existing and that is Christ-likeness. That's moral excellence. You can have a number of wonderful things in this life and I don't think God is opposed to us enjoying the many blessings of this earth. But if we want to neither be barren nor unfruitful in our faith and never fall, then we must build it upon this first quality and character trait, virtue. And the Christian's life has to be consumed with Christ himself. Again, virtue is the driving force behind all the other characters and qualities. There's no way in the world you'll focus your attention and strive to have the knowledge of Christ and the knowledge of the Word of God in your life if you don't have the, your greatest desire is not to be Christ-like, to have that moral excellence, to have that drive, that determination within, that courage and that strength to go forward to be Christ-like. There's no way in the world that you can, according to the, the, the less, be godly and obtain to godliness if you don't want to be Christ-like to begin with. Patience will be something you'll struggle with your whole life. You'll never get victory over that aspect of your life simply because you choose to As a believer, you need to say, no, the first thing I need to deal with, I've got to develop the head, and the head is virtue. I've got to have nothing to distract me from being Christ-like in my life and having that moral fiber, that moral character, that moral excellence that Christ himself had and that determination to be everything God wants me to be and to fulfill my God-given purpose. Virtue speaks of inner strength and courage, and it translates into, our, into a life with moral excellence and genuine goodness. 
And without that great desire to be Christ-like, without the decision to pursue our purpose for existing at any cost, without the willingness to ditch and let go of all other distractions and pursuits in our life, we will never truly arrive at the destination God would have us to in the faith journey that we have. Who are you following? Who do you want to be like? Let's be honest. When's the last time you really thought to yourself, man, I just want to be like Jesus in every aspect of my life? Who are we kidding? Most people don't think that way at all. We look at those people on television and go, man, if I only had their money, man, if I only had what they possess, man, if I only had a boyfriend that looked like that or a girlfriend that looked like that, Man, if I only had, man, I want that. I wish I had that, and I wish I could own this and possess that. And I mean, that's how we live our lives. And we wonder why, again, we cannot truly be fruitful in the Christian life and why we have a tendency to fall and falter on a consistent basis. God help us. See, full Christian maturity is built upon a foundation that begins with a wholehearted pursuit of Christ and His ways. That's where it all begins. What do you want more than to honor Christ, to be like Him? What do you want more than that? Because the characteristic of virtue, as it tops the list, is one that says, I want to fulfill my God-given purpose, and that in the Christian life, is to be like Him and to have His moral moral fiber and moral excellence both driving me internally and affecting me externally. Will you make pursuing Christ and Christ's likeness and His moral excellence your great goal in life? Will you begin by adding to your faith Virtue? If you don't, you'll look back in your life a year from now and you'll be right where you are today spiritually. Right where you're at. You say, well, I'm I'm content where I'm at. Fine. Well, let me ask you a question. Is he content where you're at? I mean, he's the one that died for you and saved you. What will you make your pursuit? I grew up loving football. All I wanted to be was either a football player or a football coach. That's all I ever wanted to do. I started going to the University of Akron for one reason, to be a football coach. I'm one of those guys, brother, that didn't really want to be a teacher, but if I had to teach to be a football coach, I'd do it. Because my goal was not to stay in high school. My goal was to be a college coach and maybe one day even be in the pros. That's what I wanted to do with my life. That would have taken every bit of energy that I had in my life to accomplish those goals. I may have never even accomplished them. I may have never even reached or obtained them. But I'd have had to to have given a part of myself, all of myself to my pursuit if I truly didn't want to fail or falter. If I wanted to be fruitful in that endeavor... I couldn't half-heartedly approach it. And sadly enough, we approach the Christian life half-heartedly. 
we approach it with limited effort because we have so many other pursuits other than Him and His likeness. The Apostle Peter says to the people that are going through horrible persecution and trials, and he says, if you don't want to, if you neither want to be barren nor unfruitful, if you want to never fall, if you want to forever be faithful and steadfast in this life in which you're living, this Christian life, add to your faith virtue. Make the pursuit of Jesus Christ everything to you. And you'll never fall. Father, we come to you. We ask, Lord, you'd speak to our hearts. Lord, continue to talk.